I got to tell you something. If I, uh, if I seem like I'm in a hurry, please understand it's not the clock because as, uh, as our elders can tell you, I lose track of time when I get up here. Right now it's 12 o'clock. Now, I want to say this as lovely and as kindly as I can and with love. If you've got somewhere to go right now and you want to leave because it's 12 o'clock, I'm going to give you a moment to please do so. It's okay to leave. You have that right. And no one's going to give you a guilt trip. Sometimes we have reasons that are justified and we need to leave the church. But I have no reason to skimp on what God has given us today. Because I believe that what we're going to talk about today is of utmost importance. And I know, Pastor, you say that every week. Well, if it wasn't important, I wouldn't spend time on it. See, every week when I go to the Lord, to the altar in prayer, and I say, God, what would you have me say? God gives me something to say. And I would be reminisced to say that if I were to cut that short, I wouldn't be cheating you. I'd be cheating the Lord. I can't do that. And that's why I'm saying that if you need to leave, it's okay. I understand Sometimes we have good reasons why we need to leave. I don't want anyone to think that it's just because they don't want to hear the sermon. But what I do want to say is that God has a special message. And I want us to hear every piece of it. God is good. All the time. Especially on a day in which we baptize two individuals. If I break down and cry, please understand. It's because I am moved every time that I see someone make that choice. If you don't know that, think about when you made that choice. Was it easy? You know, it's easy to make that choice at some point or another. But I would like to suggest that living with that decision is not always so easy. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Today we're going to talk about Adith. How many of you know who Adith is in the Bible? Thank you. Who is Adith in the Bible? Eve's husband? You know, some might say that. You're close. Does anybody else know who Edith, Adith is in the Bible? Raise your hands. We have several scholars here. So I want to make sure that I don't guess or assume that everyone knows who Adith is. Today we're going to talk about Adith, and it's actually found in the chapter we were just reading. Now some of you may not have known it, and in a moment I will share it with you. But today we're going to learn about something that I think is really, God has really laid on my heart, and i got to say something. I went on vacation this week, and i got to tell you something. I had a good time. You know, I missed you guys, so please understand that it wasn't because of your absence. I missed you guys. But it was just to be able to see my kids enjoy themselves. We went to Silver Dollar City, spent $60 in order to be able to get in the amusement park just so my kids could play in the sandbox all day. 
said, son, we have that at home. But the joy that they felt and the smiles on their faces really touched me. It was good to get a rest. But it's also good to be back with family. Let's have a word of prayer. God, what we are about to talk about is not of me. For it is about your scriptures. And Lord, what we pray for is that right now you would empty away all the clutter. That like the clouds that surround us today, that you would break away those clouds of confusion and that you would shine forth with clarity. Because what we will talk about today, Lord, I think is a message that you have given to us that is important and relevant for today. And Lord, I pray that you would allow me not to get in the way of it. But I pray, Lord, that your message would ring true. Anoint my lips, dear Lord, for I am not capable of saying what needs to be said. This is our prayer, let God's people say. Amen. You know, as we begin this morning, now this afternoon, I'm compelled to share with you a small preamble. Now, mind you, this is dangerous because in our passage of study this morning, there are a series of sermons. And if you've ever taken the time to read Luke 17, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is what you call a buffet of sermons. There are so many sermons that we could literally bring or come up with as a result of what is found in Luke 17. But in order for us to understand Jesus' statement in Luke 17, we must first understand the wider context. Now, a very important hermeneutic as we seek to study and understand Scripture, is to allow the Bible to be its own interpreter. Can we agree with that? You didn't come here to hear me talk, right? That's okay. I'm not going to be offended. The truth is you came to hear the gospel. You came to hear the Word of God. Amen? I hope so because I really don't have much to say. But when it comes to the Bible, I think there's a lot to say. And so it's important when we look at a context that is found in the Scriptures, we make sure that we find out whether it matches with what the rest of Scripture says. Because that's how we come to an understanding about what we believe and why we need to believe what we believe. Because then it all starts to make sense. Because it all forms part of a big picture. We know that picture is God's spoken word. Amen? You see, to compare Scripture with Scripture, Luke 17 can easily be classed as part of a long line of apocalyptic literature. It is mysterious and profound at the same time. This passage is not a group of isolated, random, disconnected stories, but rather, let me suggest, that it's Jesus artfully communicating his overriding purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is simply to usher in and establish 
his kingdom. Now, moving to our passage of today. Luke 17. Turn your Bibles there with me. Because see, here we come to a pivotal verse in this sequence of stories. Now, I'd like you to turn there with me. Go to chapter 17, and we're going to zoom in on verse 20. And when you find it, say amen. That's just so I know you're not awake. Luke 17, verse 20, says the following. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here, it is, or there it is. Does this sound familiar when Rob Long was here? By the way, how many of you enjoyed him speaking? Man, I really, really enjoyed it. For behold, it continues on saying, the kingdom of God is what? In our midst. Depending on what version you have. You know, if we read this passage with an eye of understanding, the questions that quickly arise then and now is, when is the kingdom coming? How will we know what will be our heads up that the kingdom is coming you see jesus in this text says to the pharisees the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed it's already here did you catch that that is profound He was basically saying, it is here in your midst, being evidenced all around you. In fact, Luke 17, verses 1 through 19, Jesus gives them evidence that the kingdom is in their midst. And what is that evidence that he offers up? The changes that occur in the lives of those who follow him. He said to the Pharisees, are you blind? Can you not see? Have you no perception? Do you need a two by four to hit you over the head to get your attention? Do you need a clarion like the sound of a trumpet? But how do we understand the dichotomy, the discrepancy between Luke 17 and Matthew 24. You see, Jesus had just said in Luke 17, the kingdom is not coming with signs. But Matthew 24, the disciples asked him, what, what will the, what, what will the signs be? And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives them a litany of things they were to look for. And we went over that when Rob Long was here, did we not? Hmm. Let me begin by suggesting that there are several ways to express the kingdom. In fact, I would suggest that there are two ways to describe the coming kingdom. Two aspects of the kingdom. Write these down if you will. 
Number one, is the kingdom both present and future? And there's a difference. We're going to go into that. You see, I'm going to rob from, from Rob Long and kind of do a spin on what he did. And let me say it this way. It's already, but it's not yet. It's already, but it's not yet. I mean, I like the way Rob Long said it. And I said, I like that. That kind of grabs your attention. So I said, I'll put a Rob Long spin to it and I'll come up with something similar. And I liked it. What is it that Rob Long said when they say that it's this? Is it that? You see, theologians have described the kingdom as having a dual aspect. First is the kingdom of grace. We believe this to be the present reality in which we live. The kingdom of grace. Second is the kingdom of glory. You see, this is our future hope. The kingdom of grace occurred when Jesus came. He graced us with his presence and it's made all the difference in our lives and in our world. Amen. The kingdom of grace is slowly dawning imperceptibly almost hearts are changing lives are changing from the inside out this is our present reality and i would like to suggest that we are thankful for that amen however the kingdom of glory is something that is future it doesn't really come until jesus comes both literally and Physically. You see, the ultimate coming of the kingdom comes when Jesus comes to take us home. Amen? As the Bible says, when in the twinkling of an eye, this mortal puts on immortality. This glorification is what we long for. For when Jesus comes in all his glory do you look forward to that day you see what luke 17 what i find so interesting about luke so 17 is this this chapter blends the two aspects of the kingdom it's already but it's Not yet. It's present, but it's future. The kingdom is dawning. It's coming. It ebbs and flows in our personal lives and in the world around us. The kingdoms of this world are being displaced before our very own eyes. The devil is now on the run and times are uncertain and we see the sun set on the kingdom of grace. Oh, but there is good news. For the kingdom of glory is coming. You see, the ultimate ultimate coming and fruition and certainty of his coming is unquestionable and undeniable. In fact, 
Daniel 2 talks of this image, the kingdom image. You recall it, right? We remember that, don't we? Daniel 2. Absolutely. Let me summarize it, boil it down for you. A stone is cut out without hands. As it comes down, it strikes the image. It becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. The kingdom is coming. And in Revelation, the prophetic voice of God's promises are once again seen as being fulfilled. Turn with me to Revelation quickly, chapter 11, verse 15. Because here is where we see once again what Daniel is speaking of. We find again here in Revelation chapter 11. And when you have it, please say amen. Amen. Listen to what it says. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign for today, for just one moment, forever and ever. And it ends by saying, The kingdom is coming. But the question we should ask ourselves is this. Is it coming in you? Are you embracing kingdom principles and values? Let's go back to the text in chapter 17. And I want us to pick it up in verse 21. You're doing your little biblical exercise today. That's good. We need to exercise our biblical muscles. We're getting our work out today. Verse 21, and when you have it, say amen. Jesus said something of great interest to me in this verse. You see, Jesus said the kingdom is in your midst. Jesus was right there with them. Wherever the king is, what? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? The kingdom is there. As Jesus takes up residence within us, in our midst, our hearts, our priorities, our preferences, our interests change. Why? Because the kingdom is not so much geographical as it is a clash of ideologies. Think about that for a moment. We tend to think the kingdom is about the place that we're going to. Right? Really? Because I thought we just read that wherever Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. It's not about a zip code. It's about an ideology that you embrace, that you support, that you practice. You see, the kingdom infiltrates. It goes behind enemy lines. It lodges in our minds, within us. It's slow, meticulous, intentional process of transformation. It's so. And as ambassadors, we plant the banner of the kingdom wherever we go when our behavior exhibits the love and grace of Jesus. Does your behavior exhibit the love and grace of Jesus? 
couple of prayer meetings ago. And boy, I want to give you a plug. I encourage you to come out to prayer meeting. We have a great time. And I got to tell you something. Ever since we have been talking about Genesis, I can't stop talking about Genesis. My devotionals really have taken off because I've seen Genesis over the last few weeks like I've never seen it before. I want to encourage you to come out because during prayer meeting, we really dissect the chapter and we talk about it and we exchange ideas. And ultimately, we come back to the word and we learn from God's word. A couple of prayer meetings ago, I spoke about the patient patriarch, Abraham. And at my last prayer meeting, I spoke of Lot right before I left to go on vacation. You know, I was thinking about this a lot. No pun intended. Lot's legacy was quite different than that of Abraham. Would you not agree? I thought about it for a moment. I just wrote down a few things. Decidedly different than Abraham. Let me suggest why. Lot lost his family. Abraham gained a family. (laughs) From Lot, two nations, bitter enemies of God's kingdom, came about. You remember the sordid relationship that he had with his daughter just a little while later? It paints a vivid example of how Sodom had affected Lot's family. As we further read in Scripture, we come to the words in Jesus that Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. And here's where I let the cat out of the bag, as they say. Do you know who Adith is? Lot's wife. Now, I've got to be honest. It's kind of a trick question. Because does the Bible say the name of Lot's wife? No, it doesn't. So how is it that I come up with that name? Well, like I said, it was kind of a trick question. It is believed by Jews and Jewish historians that Adith is the name of Lot's wife. Till this day, they refer to her as Adith. But I want you to turn to your Bibles to this chapter because I want to tell you something that's amazing about this. What is the shortest text in the Bible? Really? And Jesus wept. Look at chapter 17, verse 32. What does it say? Remember Lot's wife. I don't know about you, but in my math, and it's not very good math, I'll give you that, but three is still three, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. Whether it's in Luke or in Matthew. Why is it that we say that that one is shorter when they're both three words? Well, if we want to get technical, I guess you could make the argument that if you count every single letter, technically in Jesus' web to shorter, right? Look at him nodding like, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. That's fine. Maybe you were. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But it's interesting that we never mention this one as being of the shortest. But this is what captivated my attention. Here Jesus in Luke 17 is talking about all these things. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just drops in a seed that literally stirred in my mind. Remember 
Lot's wife. You see, the phrase has an ominous ring. With this expression, a vivid picture comes to my mind. I can still visualize the picture. As a child in my Sabbath school classroom, the crystalline statue depicting motion, yet standing motionless. Feet going one way and head going another. She was poised to make a decision. And by the way, she made a decision, didn't she? I wonder how long did that crystalline statue stand on those plains? You know, I actually, how many of you have been to the Holy Land? Anybody? I actually took a trip there, and that's why a couple of years ago, thank you, Malcolm, a couple of years ago, I, well, actually, almost a couple of years ago, I shared with you that I would love for our church to go to the Holy Land, because when you go to the Holy Land, you see the Bible come alive like you've never seen it before. When you can actually put your feet into the Jordan River, or be baptized like I was in the Jordan River, you get a real sense of what Jesus was like. When you can walk those same streets that Peter walked. When you can go to the Dead Sea and actually marvel as what is believed to be the statue of Adith, Lot's wife. It provides a context that you can never forget. see, that statue served, I believe, as a sentinel of warning. Her facial expressions etched in that moment of indecision, frozen in time, captured for all to see. Can you sense the trauma she was having? Can you enter into the feelings that she must have had? She was leaving behind all that was near and dear to her. The luxurious home, the wealth that God had given, the wealth that had taken a lifetime to put together, some of her family members, her own flesh and blood. How is it that this devout pilgrim journey ended in such an abrupt tragedy? Well, this morning I'd like for us to turn back the pages of time and hear the story again a little differently. You see, she was once a venturesome young woman. She left Mesopotamia with Lot, Abraham's nephew. She had also heard the call of God, embarking on a journey to who knows where. She had traveled for years, slept in a tent, bore her children in a tent, entertained in a tent. She had lived a nomadic life, roaming with the herd. When Abraham offered Lot the chance To determine his future home, she was proud of Lot's choice. The well-watered plains of the Jordan. The convenience of the nearby city. It probably wasn't long before she was asking, Lot, I would like to go to the market. I saw the caravan go by yesterday. It was heavily loaded and it came from the east, back from Haran and Ur. Can we go there? And I'm sure Lot was just like I was. Here we are, downtown Branson. And boy, it was like a kid in a candy store. My wife is, oh, I want us to go there. Oh, 
want us to go there. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, okay, that's $85 there. That's $75 there. Because I did my research. And it's not cheap to be in Branson. But boy, we had a great time. And I encourage you, if you get a chance to go there. But I saw the dollar signs. She saw the experience, the excitement, the fact that this is an opportunity to do something we haven't done in probably four or five years. To go on a vacation. To create memories. Perhaps a little while later, Lot's wife made this request. Lot, there's so much to see and do in the city. Could we move our tent just a little closer and see and do what's in the city? It would be so much more convenient for us. And finally, one day with all the charms of a woman, she said, Lot, could we move to Sodom? Could you build me a real house so we can be like normal people? Finally, they packed the tent. They moved. And the years passed by. How exciting it must have been for them to build their dream house. A real house like normal people. To have a place without dust and animals under their feet. To have a place where their children could make friends with their surrounding neighbors. There were music lessons and recitals to attend. And finally the children began to marry and have their own families and their own circle of friends. Lot's wife had gotten caught up in all those activities that we call making a living. Yes, some of her friends had changed and were questionable. The townspeople were getting a bit rowdy. Crime and violence had started to increase. Temptations blatant and in your face. But like the proverbial toad, they grew accustomed to the warming water. Lot's family was caught up in the culture. They were changed by what was around them rather than changing those around them. They went to Sodom with great intentions. They intended to be pure and white as the lily in a dirty, filthy pond. Sodom had worsened gradually. And what to them was once a challenge or questionable, finally was just acceptable. What to Abraham would have been a glaring compromise to them was just indifference. Sodom's culture slowly and insidiously changed them. Question. Do you suppose our culture could change us? Do you believe it can affect us? Are you immune to the culture? Are you immune to what's happening around us? You know, we're dreaming to think we are not. You see, 
what a few years ago may have been disgusting to us, today I would like to suggest is routine and perhaps the humor on a sitcom TV program that would never be allowed when we were growing up. I remember the stories that I would see of, of I Love Lucy where they couldn't even have a bed together because just the idea, the insinuation was enough to say that is just unacceptable. Now they never leave the bedroom. Today it seems celebrities are trying to outdo themselves with the most outlandish behavior to just get attention. If they've got it, the saying is, they flaunt it. I read recently Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter 14, The Destruction of Sodom. I encourage you to read it. It is a fascinating read. It was sobering and a reflective read. And on page 19, it says something that I would like to share with you. Page 169 in my Patriarchs and Prophets. It says this, quote, We should not needlessly expose ourselves to influences that are unfavorable to the formation of Christian character. Hmm. In another page, and speaking of Genesis chapter 19, listen to what she says, because this grabbed me, and I shared it with Wednesday night prayer meeting. Listen to this quote, because it's fascinating. Every act of life, however small, has its bearing for good or for evil. Faithfulness or neglect in what are apparently the smallest duties may open the door for life's greatest blessings or its greatest calamities. It is the little things that test the character. Before I continue it, let me preface that by saying this quote was taken in the chapter where it's talking about the two angels that literally Lot approaches. And when he invites them to come to his home, what do they say? Thank you. But no, thank you. You know, Ellen G. White says a statement that is very powerful. She says that the angels rejected the invitation, not because they were just being rude, but because they were there to count and see how many were worthy of being saved. And so Ellen G. White goes on to say that that was really a test to Lot, which means the jury was still out on whether or not Lot would be saved. And so Ellen G. White, in essence, is saying that it was that test that the angels were using to be able to make a decision whether or not they were worthy of being saved. Interesting. Let me continue reading it. It is the unpretending acts of daily self-denial performed with a cheerful heart that God smiles upon. Wow, that's a tough one to chew, isn't it? That's one pill I'd rather pass up on. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, some of us may be good at self-denial, but how many of us are good at self-denial with a smile on our face? 
We have a term for that, don't we? That's a masochist. Yet this is what God calls us to. Because this is how the quote ends. We are not to live for self, but for others. Back to our story. Because I could go off on a thousand tangents. Back to our story. You see, wherever there are people, believe it or not, there are problems. And there certainly were a lot of people in Sodom. One evening, Lot was out at the city gates catching the six o'clock news. In that moment, some strangers came in and Lot, following the example of Abraham being hospitable, he invited them to his home. At first, they declined. They were going to sleep in the streets, the city square, or on a park bench, perhaps. But Lot passed the test. Because finally, he persuaded them to come home with him. And it's a good thing, because as Lot expected, a tumult broke out. It seems the whole neighborhood had gathered in his yard and were there knocking at Lot's door. You remember the scene, right? The story is recorded in Genesis chapter 19. I want you to go to verse 5 and 7. Because we're going to read those two verses because there's something there that I want you to pick up on. And when you have it, say amen. Okay, one. We'll continue till we hear the amens. All right, let's read there. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, don't do this wicked thing. You see, the people had pressed hard against Lot. Who made you judge over us? You're just an alien. You're the new guy here. How dare you tell us what to do? You see, they were about to break down the door when the two strangers who happened to be two angels reached out, pulled Lot back inside, closed the door, and struck the crowd with complete and utter blindness. Praise God for the power of God. As far as sinfulness goes, Sodom, I would like to suggest, doesn't have anything over San Francisco or Las Vegas. These places were places of idleness, leisure, wealth, entertainment. Sometimes it seems like our society is headed in the same direction. You know, listening to the radio a few mornings ago, there was a Christian news service that said, Abercrombie and Fitch is not selling clothing. They're selling human anatomy. That rung a bell in my mind because I have a two-year-old daughter. And i got to tell you, it's become a challenge to be able to find clothes, even at that age, that is not somehow exposing some part of her body. There's a current TV program, I hope you've missed it. 
It's called Desperate Housewives. In this TV show, the main characters for go for and they do whatever they want, regardless of the collateral damage. Oh, but pastor, it's just a comedy. Satan, it seems, has repackaged and adulterated most of the good gifts of pleasure that God has given us. All the good that comes from God can be abused. It can tend to obsess and lead to excess. I don't know if you've heard it said, but I have, that if God doesn't come soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever heard that? Good. I haven't lost total touch. You see, verse 12 reads this way. Turn there with me. Luke 17, verse 12. The men, sorry, Genesis 19. The men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law, your son, your daughters, whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. Well, Lot goes out under the cover of the darkness, the Bible tells us, and he talks with his family. But what happens? The story tells us that what? They didn't listen. They looked at him with jesting. Oh, stop it. It's just a TV show. Oh, stop it. It's just a little bit of clothing. Oh, stop it. It's only Friday night. Verse 15 says something interesting. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. You know what that tells me, people? Lot didn't just go over and say, My son, I just got news that they're going to destroy this city. Come on, let's go. You coming? Okay. See you later, buddy. You stay there. It's cool. No, you can stay if you want. Is that what Lot did? Because the Bible tells us that it was dawn, which means that this is more the the story that we see. My son, I love you. I refuse to leave here until you come with me. Don't you understand? This place is going up in flames. And I love you. I can't bear to lose you. What is it going to take for you to come with me? I'm not leaving. That's it. I'm staying here. Give me the remote. Give me the remote. Come on. Good man. Is it always this hard to come to church? (laughs) Probably will be now, right? (laughs) He's like, I'll go, Pastor, wherever you say. I'll go. (laughs) You see, the encounter wasn't one of just a few minutes. Lot literally did everything he could until dawn came and the angel said, buddy, time is up. You either come now and bring whoever is willing or you're going to be toast. 
Listen to what verse 16 says. Because this is fascinating. After all of this, look at what happens to Lot. What does it say in verse 16? And while he lingered. Other translations say, and Lot hesitated. You know, maybe that's why he wasn't successful with his family. Because maybe he himself was debating, should I? Will it? Does it make a difference? He hesitated, and so the men seized Lot by the hand, and Lot's wife, and by the hand, and his two daughters by the hand. And it says in verse 16, the compassion of the Lord was upon Lot and his family. You see, God didn't want to give them up. It was hard for him to let them go. They were bewitched, bewildered, and in rapture. Patriarchs and Prophets goes on to say, but for the angels of God, they would have perished in the ruin of Sodom. They were literally snatched from destruction. Lot's wife was following, but you might say she went kicking and screaming. They dragged her almost against her will. God had called her years before, but the call had dipped to a flicker. The heart had changed. She had drifted. People, are we drifting? Is the fire for Christ really burning in your belly? Notice verse 17. Genesis 19. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. You see, the angel's message, I believe, was clear. There was no room for hesitancy or delay at this point. Just a lingering look back at their beautiful home and their flesh and blood would cost them their entire life. And then we come to that famous notorious verse, verse 26, Genesis chapter 19. But his wife from behind him looked back. And she became prettier. She became younger. She became happy. She became fulfilled. She had an extreme makeover. Yeah. God style. She became a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. 
picture her there. She is torn between trusting God and returning back to those things that had brought her comfort, security, and pleasure. I gotta be honest with you. When I was coming back from Branson, I'll never forget this picture. My son Alex and Sophie, we get into the car and we said, okay, vacation's over, we're going back home. They cried. No, Daddy. More vacation. I had to be tough. So I manned up and said, we have to go home. But I'll be honest with you, I thought of Lot's wife. I'm not calling Branson Sodom, okay? Please, don't make that jump. But I understand the tug of war that goes on in our hearts. When we love something so much that we sit there and we say, hmm, if even for just one moment. You know, this is not just the story of Lot's wife. It's also our story. The struggle that we personally experience is captured in the facial expression of that crystallized salt monument standing as a sentinel in the plain. You see, we all experience the pull to look back. The tendency to trust the personal hedge that we've placed around ourselves, around our homes, around our families, as if to think that we are truly safe, that we've done a good job. We've felt the pull to embrace the here and now, to experience it. You see, Lot's wife's struggle is our struggle. And yet scripture admonishes us. It says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is eternal. What is unseen is eternal. And what is seen is temporal. If we only have the present, the here, and the now, then perhaps the hedonist philosophy makes more sense to us today. Eat, drink, and what? Be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. In all likelihood, ancient Sodom is covered by sand and by the salty, mineral-encrusted Dead Sea. Did you know that where Sodom once existed happens to be the lowest, deadest, most lifeless spot on earth? 1,388 feet below sea level. I don't know if you've had the chance, but I've been to the Dead Sea. And I was actually able to go into the water. And it was fascinating. Because they say it's the one place where you will not drown. Because see, the water is so salty that literally there's a certain, because of the level that's there, sea level, 
It's so low that what happens is that you become more buoyant than you could ever possibly be in any other sea or ocean or lake. It's a fascinating place. How ironic that this ancient wicked city sunk perhaps to the lowest depths in selfish hoarding and pleasure seeking. Back to Luke 17. Let me wrap it up. You see, the message in Luke 17, I haven't forgotten. We're going back there. Is found really in verse 17 of Genesis 19. You see, where the warning is given, and the warning is to, in Genesis, escape. Do not stay anywhere in the valley with the low life. Do not stay where you can be burned. Do not look back. Escape to the mountains. Where have you heard that before? We've been warned that when the last days come, the call will be for us to do, flee to the mountains. Has that time come? I'll be honest with you. For my family, it has. It's one of the reasons why we felt convicted that Missouri was a place for us to live. Not that this is considered mountains. I think we're void of mountains, aren't we not? People always tell them that these are hills. Well, you have to understand, I came from Florida. So these are mountains to us. All right, granted, before that I lived in California, but I lived in Florida, so I forgot what mountains were all, all about. But to me, these look like mountains. We made a decision to come here because we were so concerned about the fact that we have kids and we wanted to raise them in a place that at least had some semblance of what God is. Because when I was in California, I told my wife, I don't know how much longer we can bear it here. I'm concerned for my kids. But you know, this used to be called the Bible Belt. Of the United States, did it not? Can we say that it is now? Those lines are slowly being eroded away each and every day. You see, it's interesting that in Luke 17, none of the sins of Sodom are mentioned. (laughs) Only that they were going about their day-to-day lives. Caught up in the race we call life. You see, if we're obsessed by what is important in our culture, it will shape us. You see, God knows that what we admire changes us. Write this one down. What we admire changes us, but what we worship shapes us. Maybe that's why God asks us to worship Him and only Him. Why did I talk about this today? Are we so far removed from Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we blind as the Pharisees? That we can't see. The end is near. 
The end is near. I'm sorry that some of you are sad about that. Maybe I should say it with a smile. The end is near. Thank you. Sorry. My fault. The end is near, people. And I'm concerned that we're going to be too busy, wrapped up in our daily life. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. It's in your midst. May we this week live like we are citizens of the kingdom. Let God's people say, Amen. Let me have a word of prayer. We're not going to finish with a hymn. Since you were kind enough to let me share everything that I believe God wanted me to share with you. We're going to have a word of prayer. God, Luke 17, specifically verse 32, should serve to remind us that we are no different than Lot's wife. That we too are susceptible to the incantations of this world. So much that we start to place more importance on our daily routine than our daily service to you. Our daily devotion to you. Lord, I pray that verse 32 would serve to remind us that the time is near. And there is no time for hesitancy. All we have time to do is to keep our eyes fixed on you, our Lord, our Savior, who is coming in the clouds of glory. Lord, let our lives demonstrate that this week, that God's people say, Amen. May God bless you this week.